Welcome back once again to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. And I am Jane. <laughs> if you haven't listened to the episode before this, <laughs> or you're listening to them in backwards order, we're laughing because we just recorded last week's episode for the second time. Mm-hmm. So here we are, you know, mm-hmm. just talked about technology. Now we're going to talk about the arts. Kind of. Yeah. 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 The, the yeah. arts and humanities. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. Great. A, a shift. We're covering all the bases today. <laughs> exciting. It's exciting. very exciting. Do you have anything to say about how you're doing? Hmm. We didn't do that last time. No, we didn't. Well, I'm in like a, I've got a weird energy going today because I could not sleep at all last night. Um, I think I fell asleep at like 530 in the morning. What? <laughs> this isn't fake shock. I did not know this. <laughs> yeah, I just like, I stayed up until like. Later than I thought. Like, I thought it was, like, oh, clearly it's later. Probably, it's probably, like, one thirty, and then I looked at my phone, and it was, like, 3 in the morning, and I was like, this is ridiculous. Go to bed, Jane. But then I, like, just started doing random things on my phone, and then at that point, I was like, oh, my God, now well, I'm just wired, and my brain was just, like, it would not switch into now is sleep time mode. Oh, my and God. And then I, I, I remember it starting to get light, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. But I think it was 5.30 when I went to bed, and I woke up at, like, 8-ish, um, to like answer a text and then I went back to sleep and then I woke up to a text from you at 11 o'clock being like let's when do you want to record today yeah I was out of the house I was surprised I was surprised because I left the house to go pick up my mom's bike Uh at 11 30 and you weren't I hadn't heard from you yet because I texted you when I woke up at 10 and normally you Mm. respond even if I don't see you so I was like okay um she I don't know what she's doing but when I left 11 30 I was like I really think Jane is still asleep and you answered that when you responded to my text at 12.15. <laughs> it was crazy. Wow, I did not know that. Thank you for being awake a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, I Maybe tonight you'll go to sleep really early because you're tired. Maybe. I don't know. I still technically haven't had that much sleep because sleeping from, like, 5 to 11 is still, like, six, six hours. hours. Which is, like, you can survive on that. But, but it's it was also, also at a weird time. Yeah. So I might crash. <laughs> That's you fine. Know? You can crash. Anyway, do you... <laughs> crash whenever you like <laughs> do you have anything you'd like to say about how you're doing um uh, no <laughs> <laughs> okay not because i don't okay. not because i don't care about all of you i just have nothing to add that would be interesting to the general group uh-huh, uh-huh. um i got a bike <laughs> oh it's a great bike. bike it's really cute it's pink i love her <laughs> um her name is molly brown thank you taylor she's unsinkable she's unsinkable <laughs> although i'm not gonna take her in the water i'm not gonna prove that <laughs> That's how I'm doing. I have a gorgeous new bike named Molly Brown. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to learn more about the history of K-pop. Yeah. So we can just do that. Sure. Now, K-pop is Korean pop. Mm-hmm. And before I get into the South history. South Korean pop. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is North from Korea South Korea. would literally never. No. Now, uh, first, I put down a couple of, like, terms to be defined, because K-pop, it has such a specific, like, vernacular, yeah. and, um... As I've learned like, almost language. Yeah, yeah, there are certain sentences that, like, you could say to me that I'd be like, mm-hmm, that if you had said that to me a year ago, I'd be like, what are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And it, it, it's just a, such a specific, almost culture. Yeah. So, I wrote down a couple of the, like, big ones. Mm-hmm. 
and big ideas to just talk about before we get into history. The first one is bias. Uh (laughs) Your bias is your favorite member of a group. Mm -hmm. You can also have a bias group, which Mm -hmm. is your favorite group. Uh, There's also an alt bias, which is your absolute favorite member of all idol groups. Oh. Um, You can have a bias wrecker, which is a member of a group that makes you want to switch biases. Oh. A comeback is when a group releases new music, and it's kind of a process. Mm-hmm. Like, BTS released a album relatively recently. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend about it, and she was like, what have you thought of this comeback um, right. like, l- like process? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, the new album? And she's like, no, the, the comeback. Like, right. it's, a thi- it's mostly it's because, just interviews it's and because, performances. Like, yeah, and- every album, from what I understand, it's, like, considered a new era because, yeah. like, the concept of the album changes, and then they take on that new concept. Mm-hmm. So even though, like, they never left the public eye, yeah. you know, it's still this... This idea that mm-hmm. they've come back into a new era because mm-hmm. it's their new type, their new music. Yeah, yeah. An idol is just a word that means a Korean, a K-pop star. Mm-hmm. The every group has a leader, or almost every group, and that is the person that is usually responsible for organizing the group and acting as a middleman between the agency and the group. Mm-hmm. And they also usually start public introductions and are the first to speak in interviews and award ceremonies. Yes, like in BTS. Now, June, a maknae is the group's youngest member. Mm-hmm. Now, that is something kind of important to keep in mind. I'm not going to talk about it a lot, but um, in Korean culture, age is much more important than it is yeah. in our culture. And, like, people who are older than you being given a Have certain respect, respect yeah, yeah, yeah. is a really big thing. Superlative. So yeah. Big so, thing. like, uh, the maknae is the youngest member of the group, mm-hmm. but a golden maknae is a member who is the youngest member who is impressively multi-talented despite their young <laughs> age. I love you, Jungkook. (laughs) Of BTS. (laughs) I'm going to make a lot of BTS references. I do listen to a couple of other groups, but BTS... BTS is also the most famous in America, for sure. Absolutely. So it's the easiest one. If if any of you are listening that know anything about K-pop, you probably know BTS. Yeah. There are subunits of groups, which are sometimes called lines, which Mm -hmm. are specific member which gives specific members chances to show off certain talents Mm -hmm. for example a group might have a rap unit and a vocal unit and maybe a dance unit Mm -hmm. and often the rap and vocal units will release separate music yeah just to show off what they can do like on their own Mm -hmm. v live is a platform it's a very important live stream platform and almost all K-pop idols have official accounts on V Live. Mm-hmm. Uh, some idols post entire episodes of behind-the-scenes footage, and some like to live stream from their hotel after a concert while they're on <laughs> tour. They like to just show off their whole hotel experience. Yeah, and it's watched by many people. A lot of people like to just like oh, try and pretend they're living with these people. Yeah, the big three is the three major entertainment companies that mm-hmm. produce K-pop groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, the These companies are SMYG and JYP Entertainment. Okay. BTS does not come from... Yeah, BTS follows Big Hit. They come from Big Hit, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And their other one is which, TXT. Which was a big thing when they first came out because they were kind of seen as outsiders and yeah. Big Hit doesn't do things the like, exact same yeah. way as the other three, mm-hmm. so... It took them... It was harder for them to get respect as a group. And look where they are now. Yeah. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) There is a very specific... There are very specific expectations for idols. They're not allowed to date, like, at all. Yeah. There's been a a pretty big controversy lately where uh, these two 
idols from this group called Triple H, um, Edon yeah. and Huna revealed that they had been dating for two years yeah. and that like they were together. And Edon uh, isn't from Triple H. Edon is from Pentagon, oh, which well, is this article lied. Triple yes, H, that is his, his girlfriend is from. She Triple was in Triple H. H. She was in Pentagon, yeah. and they announced that they were together, and it was a big deal. Like she got fired. He did too. They actually, I found out. I love Pentagon. I'm really yeah. into their music, and he was fired via like their representative from their managing company. I forget who they're under. Yeah. Announcing to the news that he was fired. They didn't give him a personal yeah. call. He found out. Um, in, like the same in the general. It's crazy. Did. It's crazy. It's a really really big thing. And like even before they become idols, they have like a training process usually. Mm-hmm. And part of that I'm sh- is mostly, you know, rehearsing and being trained in singing and dancing and, like, becoming a better artist. But I'm sure there's a lot of, like, learning etiquette, about what is yeah. expected of you and the yeah. etiquette of this world. Definitely. And... Much similar to Mia Thermopolis's training yeah. in <laughs> Princess Diary. Yes. Now, all that being said, let's get into the history. So, South Korea is current... It's considered to be home to one of the world's most vibrant and dominant pop music industry like pop music there is everything yeah it's huge whereas in america we have some more like i, I guess variety of genres but i i don't know it's a mega machine yeah the k-pop it just uh it's huge and in the early 90s what we think of as modern k-pop took shape mm-hmm. and at the same time there was this big culture wave going on that they call the hallyu mm-hmm. which is just a big spreading and just boom of Korean culture mm-hmm. that is, is something they take great pride in. The In 2013, the then South Korean president, Park Geun-hye, said in her inaugural address, in the 21st century, culture is power. And she was referencing the Hallyu and its continued worldwide domination. Yeah. And it's not even just music. K-dramas are becoming really big right now. TV shows. Yeah. Um, and Korean films are also growing in popularity. Yeah. Still, though, for a majority of Americans, if you ask them about Korean music, the only thing they can think of is, like, Gangnam Style, mm-hmm. uh, which was a really big deal because it brought, like, the idea that Koreans can make, like, fun music yeah. that can be enjoyed by all. I talked about that all. in the decade wrap-up episode oh, yeah. that Gangnam Style introduced America to the You're idea like, of oh, Korean music. Yeah. yeah. But it's... I think it's definitely the most famous Korean song that yeah. Americans know. But there's so much more to it, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Korean music is also kind of the victim of judgment because uh, there's this system of training for idols that is very intense and it starts from a very young age sometimes mm-hmm. that is not... Like, I'll say it's it's correct to be, like, the subject of scrutiny, but... Not all of K-pop is that, and mm-hmm. a lot of times people assume that. Yeah. It is a vibrant, relevant, and entertaining industry that has a lot more to offer than Westerners tend to give it credit. Yeah. The roots of Korean popular music go all the way back to 1885. Ooh. Now, there was a missionary who was either English or American, I'm not sure, and he was in Korea. His name was Henry Appenzeller, and he taught school children. American and British folk songs, but he replaced the English lyrics with Korean ones. Oh. These songs were called Changa. Mm-hmm. Now, from 1910... Isn't there a BTS song where they go Changa, Changa? Like, isn't that a thing? Maybe. I don't know. 
I wonder if that's a There's so many songs and I know. words that I just like filter in my head as those are Korean words I don't know. Yeah, I feel like there's a song where they I can hear them say Changa and I wonder if they're referencing it. Anyway. I don't know. Uh, but from 1910 to 1945, the Japanese were in control of mm-hmm. the Korean continent, like North and South Korea, mm-hmm. and they collected and banned the Changa because they thought the lyrics were like inappropriate because a lot of them denounced the idea of colonial oppression and mm. Japanese colonization of Korea. Yeah. So that was not allowed. And then in 1945, when the Korean Peninsula was liberated from Japan and Korea was basically having a moment of, great, now we can have our own culture again. Yeah. And they brought back the chanka and it sort of spread into what's div- what was called trot music, mm-hmm. which is just more modernized versions of the chanka. Okay. Uh, remixes. No, uh, <laughs> 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 but also, for the first time, they were sort of intermingling with the West more to experience other cultures. Okay. And trying to spread their culture a little bit and really just trying to establish more of a Korean identity now that they had more independence. Yeah. Some U.S. troops remained in the country after the end of the Korean War and they brought American music with them and American music and pop culture was kind of introduced to Korean spread around a little bit. Okay. In 1959, we had the first, like, group. Now, two sisters named Sukja and Aija who were the daughters of conductor Kim Jae-sung and famous Korean singer Lee Nan-yung, or Lee Nan-young, forgive me for all these pronunciations. The sisters joined forces with their cousin, Minja, to form a group called the Kim Sisters. Okay. And what he would do... Wait, I've heard of the Kim Sisters. You keep talking, but okay. I've heard of them. Uh, well, you might have, because they were, like, big in America, too. Mm-hmm. Kind of. They performed country songs to U.S. troops in Korea, mm-hmm. and they gathered rock and roll records from American soldiers, and they kind of learned the music and ex- used it to expand their repertoire. Yeah. Uh, they eventually moved to Las Vegas and performed at venues like um, the Stardust Hotel and other, like, yeah. big concert halls. And they were considered really influential because they were introducing Korean music to huge American audiences for the first time. Very cool. Yeah, they were cool. There's some show that came out recently that takes place in the 60s, Mm. and they talk about the Kim sisters, and I know I've watched it, and I can't remember what it is. Oh. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, they were cool. Although I do, <laughs> I wonder if the one cousin is like, feels funny that she's not a sister. She's like, they're sisters. I'm a cousin. But we're the Kim sisters. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe they just all felt yeah. like sisters. They were so close. Yeah. In 1962, the original Korean rock band Ad 4 was founded by this guy named Shin Joo Hyun, who was dubbed the father of Korean rock. Mm-hmm. And this group came right after Beatlemania. Mm-hmm. So... That helps them rise popularity in Korea. Like, they're like, oh, this is the Korean version of that super famous yeah. group over there in England and the U.S. And the thing that I think is interesting to note now that I think puts modern K-pop in an interesting context is even back then, rock stars in Korea were treated to such a higher... Or were subjected to such a higher moral standard than, yeah. like, our rock stars. Right. Like, if you were to tell me, like... The Beatles did drugs. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what else is new? Right. Um, <laughs> but they had to be seen with a clean reputation. Yes. Um, yeah. when Shin Joo-hyun was... <laughs> he went down a very like similar path to what you hear of a lot of rock stars doing. Right. But he spent two years in jail from drug charges and was banned from performing because of it. Wow. And Also, he was considered really like anti-patriotic because the president, Park 
Chung Hee asked him to write a song in his honor and he refused. Oh. So the government really didn't like him. Yeah. And it just kind of shows the the power that like government has over the music. Yeah. Like I feel like now if someone like musicians can still be famous and still be very anti-government in America. Yes. Well, which like, I yeah. That's like the whole conversation right now in um in South Korea you are required to serve time in the army yes. by the time you're 28 and you have to serve for 2 years and the oldest member of BTS is turning 28 this year um and there's a whole conversation about what's going to happen because BTS brings in so much money yeah. that there's like a is the government going to change the yeah. rule for BTS yeah. and that the how linked the two are I yeah. think is a very powerful example of uh, South Koreans like just the the terms of respect that they yeah. have for one another and also like their country yeah. that it is expected of them and all of them are willing to serve yeah you know, in the and army. i don't want to make it sound like i'm saying like korean so authoritative and yeah no it's not that it's just their culture's like yeah more respectful yeah of yeah, their yeah, superiors yeah. Than ours. and um a, a, a very different sense of duty to yes, government yes that's a better way of saying it. Similar to Shin Ju Hyun was a folk singer who came very soon after named Han Dae Su. Mm-hmm. And he performed music that was inspired by Bob Dylan, but he did it in his home place of Busan, home city. Mm-hmm. And he had learned this because he spent a, a large chunk of his childhood and college years in New York City learning American folk music. But then he returned to Busan and started releasing his own music mm-hmm. and... A lot of people saw it as anti-government. Everybody go watch Train to Busan. It's, really <laughs> it's a really good movie. <laughs> but yeah, he releases all music that people saw as pretty radical. I don't think he had any intention of doing anything, any harm. But, you know. Yeah. In the 70s, there was this guy named Cho Young-pil who gained popularity playing country and Western music to U.S. soldiers in the 50s, like the Kim sisters, which a couple of people on here... I think a lot of them performed for U.S. soldiers. Yeah. And that was kind of, like, how they got their start yeah. in being musicians. He he became relatively famous from that, but then in 1975, he released his own song, which was called Come Back to Busan Port, and it, he, it, like, launched him into huge fame and success. He's referred to as the Korean Michael Jackson. Oh. And he was the first Korean singer to perform at Carnegie Hall, which he did in 1980. Wow. And he also is the is one of very, very few South Korean artists who have had a concert in North Korea, which he oh, did in 2005. Wow, that's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. In 1985, Lee Guangzhou became a very famous ballad singer. The style of music that was really popular in the 80s was like really romantic style ballads. Mm-hmm. The like singer that was really big at the time was, quote, doe-eyed musicians whose slow syrupy songs focused entirely on romance and affairs of the heart. Yeah. Lee Guangzhou was one of the first and was definitely one of the most popular. He sold 30,000 300,000 copies of his 1985 album This Must Be a Translation. You're too far away to get close to. Mm. It just sounds very literal but I'm thinking it might have a better sounding Korean name. Yeah. In 1992, we got the first idol group. Idol. It was a trio called Seo, Taiji, and Boys. Mm. (laughs) Tag yourself on boys. (laughs) (laughs) 
I just assumed Seo Taiji was one person and the other two were boys. boys. I didn't yeah. take it as like Seo, Taiji, and boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got famous, sick One Direction reference, by being on a televised talent show on oh, Korean TV. Amazing. Which I say sick One Direction reference, these guys did it first. Right. <laughs> one, direc- one Direction it reference was, them. Yeah. <laughs> and they marked the beginning of the like beat oriented modern sound that is mm-hmm. the big thing today and they're a big part of the beginning of the Hallyu that I mentioned mm-hmm. before the like boom of Korean yeah. culture yeah that was spreading worldwide the funny thing about this story is that when they sang on this talent show they got the lowest possible scores they could get from the show's panel of judges but the song they sang went on to be their signature song and it was massively successful that's so interesting yeah that's really cool. I kind of want to look it up That's and like, to it. I found out last night Jennifer Hudson came in seventh on American Idol. Isn't that crazy? And now she's singing for and the then Pope. A, and then a, she sang for the Pope. And then a year later, she won an Oscar for Dream Girls. <laughs> like, what? Crazy. Anyway. Jeez. In 1996, I love this group's name. <laughs> we got this group called H-O-T, which stands for High Five of Teenagers. <laughs> I love this. And they were part of the, like, the first big wave of big Korean boy bands Mm -hmm. that were being created. And they were the first group to sell a million albums, which is even more impressive considering that at the time South Korea was in the middle of a financial crisis. Oh, yeah. So it's like, none of us got money, but we're still going to buy this album. Right. There was a Korean movie called Age of Peace in the year 2000, which was (laughs) a lot like Space Jam. It was like sci-fi and a comedy uh, but it was with soccer instead of basketball, mm-hmm. and HOT was in it. Oh, good for them. And SM was, it's one of the big three companies, mm-hmm. was the record label that created HOT. And when they saw how much money that they were making, they created an all female RB focused counterpart called SES. Mm-hmm. SES stands for C, like the ocean, Eugene, and Shu. And it was the first girl group that Mm -hmm. got really big. They were immensely successful. Um, They broke up in 2002, but they reunited in 2016 and are currently working on a new album and a reality show. Oh, that's cool. So look out for SES. They're making a comeback. Yeah. In 2000, SM discovered this girl named Kwan Bo Ah, or her like stage name is B-O-A or Boa, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, The A is capitalized and the B, not the O. But she accompanied her brother to a talent competition and SM like spotted her and made her their like it girl and she was very quickly crowned the queen of Korean pop mm. which is interesting because she's a solo artist yeah like, that this whole thing is about groups but she was on her own and she was one of the first artists that she got really big in Korea but then she also became very famous in Japan as well mm-hmm. she is one of the only artists from outside of Japan to sell an al- more than a million copies of an album in Japan, and she did that three times. Oh. And that's very rare for non-Japanese artists yeah. to sell that much in Japan, but she had three different albums that sold more than a million copies. Wow, that's so cool. Um, in the year 2000, the big three produced a bunch of pop groups. Like, it's a very long list. Mm-hmm. They just, like, kept bringing them up, and if they broke up, later they might come back. Like, right. It, <laughs> <laughs> it was, a bunch of groups were being popped up. Now... The, when you sign with one of these companies to, like, make music, uh, the company's job is technically to, like, help you produce the music, but they're kind of known to be, like, 
colossal artist management and image consulting conglomerates who maintain absolute legal controls over their charges. Mm -hmm. These big three companies are the companies that really are the ones that are doing the like treating their um, artists so mm-hmm. poorly and yeah. making them setting very rigid rigid lives yeah standards standards yeah. and lives uh, people call contracts with them slave contracts oh yeah um, they control an idol's life for a very long time mm-hmm. and the idols see an incredibly small percentage of the money that they earn in the company yeah so like you could be really famous but not rich at all right which uh, it helps them control you more yeah absolutely yeah SM Entertainment founder Lee Suman said that his company's contracts were, quote, cultural technology, which were justifiable because they were an effective and efficient means of spreading the Hallyu across the world. Oh, yeah. So he was like, Korean culture, like... Will be better for it. Will be better for what I am doing. In 2009, three members of the boy band TVXQ took SM to court over the length and terms of their contracts. Oh, wow. And it, it had a positive outcome. It resulted in the Korean Fair Trade Commission creating a standard model for contracts Mm -hmm. that other, like, record labels would have to follow and base their contracts off of. Mm -hmm. And they also established a, like, governmental support center where artists could seek legal advice in terms of their contracts with their groups. That's not saying that, like, we fixed it in 2009. Right. Like, like, groups that are um, managed by those companies are still, like, they leave such strict schedules and lives yeah. and the amount that they sleep what they eat what they wear yeah. who they see what they do like it's so strictly managed yeah. and it's so intense and it's for many years of your life and yeah. it's a lot yeah for sure i i feel like i've even heard stories one of, of them's like, yg right yeah and when i'm pretty sure um black pink, black pink is, is, is definitely yeah i've heard a lot about black pink yeah so that like started the whole thing of like Mm-hmm. Th- these companies but it's not all of them like big hit again is considered like i like, this made me so respect big hit as a company because like they let bts make money yeah, from their work they get a lot of money um, they um, have more freedom it's true they still do have to follow like the rules but that's more of a cultural thing than big hit like forcing them to that i'm sure yeah. there are things they've signed in their contract is rbw one of the big three no it's sm yg and sm yg and jyp jyp okay i was curious because mama moo which is a girl group Jane yeah and I both like i was wondering if they're managed by them but they're not i hope big hit creates a girl group they want to mm, they should they should big bang is a really influential group mm, yeah um, i was talking to my friend julie who my co-worker loves them yeah she who like knows a lot about k-pop and she was like you have to mention big bang mm-hmm. um they have been dubbed the uncontested dons of the global hallyu domination mm. all five members of this group have gone on to have massive solo success in the fields of not mute not only music but also fashion and acting wow. they're all very famous um it's a very influential group in the K-pop world. In 2007, Girls' Generation was formed. It's an eight-member group, and they're also huge in Korea and Japan, mm-hmm. which also rare. And, of course, in 2012, Psy gave us Gangnam Style. Of course. I would like to reverse something I said earlier. I said Triple H wasn't in... Uh, Edon wasn't in Triple H. He was. That's what... I, see, someone also told me that someone is in Pentagon, and I thought they were in two separate groups. Maybe I'm thinking Edon was in Pentagon and Triple H. Triple H is a, um, had had two members of Pentagon, and then um, uh. Hyuna was also in it, and they ended up, because they were dating, they were removed from... Triple H and Edon was removed from Pentagon, and I think I think Hyuna was also rem- was removed from 
Wonder Girls, her own girl group. Mm -hmm. So they were, like, both in two. And one of them, they were together. Well, now their careers are basically, like... I... I, What Julie was... When when it was being explained to me, it was sort of made it sound like the group really distanced themselves from them Mm -hmm. at first, but then they were just totally fired. Yeah. And it's, like, kind of sad that, like, they just fell in love and now they can't make the music that they were making that they right. well it's because like it's such a part of yeah. k-pop culture that like you need your audience to be able to envision that like they could date you. they could date yeah. you yeah that's like a, a huge part thing. Of it, yeah. yeah so anyway who are your biases no okay <laughs> <laughs> anyway let's talk about bts uh, no. <laughs> we don't have to do that although we love them we do love them which it's so funny because like not that long ago, I literally was having a conversation with someone where I was like, I understand, like, why K-pop's so big and, like, I love boy bands and, like, I guess I can kind of get, but I'll just never get into it because I, I'll, like, I, I don't, uh, songs that aren't in English, like, I just don't, like, I can't get into them. Which, part of it, like, is true. I love to sing along to music and yeah. singing along to music yeah. and being able to, like, Lyrically connect lyrically to, what's going, to what's going it on is something, as performer. That's, yeah, 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 is something sure. that's big to me. And I, I don't know. I just really love being able to sing a song along with So it, that's part of it. But also, I can't believe I said that a year ago because I have so much fun with it now. Yeah. I was such a dumb friend. <laughs> I get why I was saying that, but I was just so, like, naive. I was you wrong. Know? <laughs> I was wrong. It's called character development. It's, it's growth. Yes. No, Jane and I both listen to BTS. We love BTS. We were supposed to be seeing them in concert three days ago, and then that didn't happen, um, which is a tragedy. But there are many other wonderful K-pop groups out yeah. there I know, that I want to try to get more into, besides just being like, I love K-pop because I love BTS. Like, I know that, that that's not encompassing. <laughs> well, there, I mean, I have started slowly to spread out to other groups as right. well, and I enjoy them as well. I'm sure saying that I like BTS, like, I'm sure there are groups that I might not as might not enjoy as much because it's not like a blanket thing like you can right. like one group but and what like i want to say is i don't want to be like i get k-pop because, because I, I get li- bts because yes. i listen to BTS. of course that's what i'm trying to say and i'm sure there's so much that i haven't even mentioned yeah. on here culturally it's there's like, so many yeah. important groups yeah. i could have brought up right i don't think we as americans will ever truly understand the influence of k-pop yeah. in in south korea yeah and its impact just because i don't think we have something that's quite so comparable even though we are a country that produces huge amounts of music and Mm -hmm. music and film and television and media in general i don't think we whereas in south korea it seems like culturally everybody loves and appreciates k-pop and understands the cultural significance i don't think there's anything like that in america that we as a country could agree on to Mm -hmm. be like yes it's amazing you know yeah i would also say earlier i said that the average person like only knows gangnam style and i think that's true i think more people are not into k-pop than are in america but that's not to say that it's not a huge phenomenon over here oh yeah like it's it was so hard to get tickets for bts like there was a registration process i mean when they performed on times square Times Square was on a Sunday this year, New Year's Eve, yeah. and people lined up the Wednesday before to see BTS. When they were on SNL, you can get standby tickets by waiting in line. On average, people start waiting Thursday, maybe Wednesday, mm-hmm. and people lined up on Monday for yeah. Saturday Night Live standby tickets that would be distributed Saturday morning. 
they waited a week. Like, that says a huge amount on the influence of this one group. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, we both work at elementary schools. I know my students know Boy With Love, partially because Halsey was featured, and then that got a lot of radio attention yeah. here. Um, but it's, it's really amazing how quickly their influence has grown, even from, like, when they appeared for the after they appeared the first time on Colbert or when they appeared yeah. for the first time on James Corden like the amount of attention they've gotten I was shocked when my mom and her boyfriend knew who they were at first and then I was like wait like they're on every late night show they've yeah. been on every late night show in America now so it's pretty interesting um is that everything yeah that's everything cool thank you that was very very fascinating so the middle segment, this is like really weird and it literally came to me on Instagram today Great. Can't wait. because today is like Earl or June is Earl Grey month, like the tea. And so it's almost June. It, Sarah! it really is. Time has lost all meaning. It really has. It is almost June. Um, so it's Earl Grey month. And I was like, okay, I want to know why Earl Grey tea is named Earl Grey tea. Turns out we don't quite know, but I'm going to tell you what we oh. do. <laughs> so Earl Grey is a classic tea, and literally all an Earl Grey tea is. It means that it has bergamot in it, and bergamot, I didn't know this, is oil from bergamot oranges that are only grown in Calabria, Italy. So that what? already, I was like, <laughs> like, whoa. Super cool. So an Earl Grey is any tea that has those components. And there are many forms of Earl Grey. Mm -hmm. um, there's French Earl Grey, which has <laughs> rose petals. Earl Grey. <laughs> Russian Earl Grey, which includes lemongrass. And Lady Grey has mm -hmm. the addition of Seville oranges in it. Oh, um, a lady. Yeah. So there are, like I said, many, many variations. Who was Earl Grey? Charles... <laughs> Gray. Uh -huh. I mean, he lived from 1764 to 1845. Um, was also the British Prime Minister from mm. 1830 to 1834. He was actually a very notable political figure, and most people only remember him because of the tea. But he <laughs> um, he secured the passing of the Reform Act of 1832 and the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. So, mm. like, two notable political documents. There are many speculations on how he became connected with the tea some there is a story that he saved the life of a chinese mandarin or his son and was given the tea as a gift but this is unlikely considering he never went to china uh-huh some people think it was given to Lord Grey as a gift for opening tea trade routes by abolishing the East India Trading Company's monopoly on tea imports, which was, like, very significant because he kind of destroyed the East India Trading Company in terms of, like, being a monopoly <laughs> on the um, triangle trade. Mm-hmm. According to Grey family lore, uh, the tea <laughs> was blended by a Chinese Mandarin, especially for Lord Grey, and given to him. Um, and it was completed with bergamot oil to compensate for lime in water at Holwick Hall, which is where he lived in Northumberland. It is the most likely that Grey at some point either purchased or was given a high-quality Chinese tea that he replicated himself by adding bergamot oil to it. Like, he was actually okay. trying to just remake something that was given to him. In England at the time he was alive and, and power, the 1830s, it was uncommon for cheap teas to be flavored with bergamot because they were trying to imitate 
expensive cheese teas from China and they thought of bergamot as like a cheap item but so he was kind of the first person to do it um but what ended up happening is that it was a good idea because it balanced the flavor and the minerals of the water they were using to make the tea mm-hmm. and in any case by the time he was out of power it had become a very popular mixture um and it was supposedly also used by his wife lady gray when entertaining in london and that's where it originally became popular from her giving it to elites in london england of course because women do everything it's true what's interesting is that it's been almost 200 years and there is still argument over who has the original recipe for earl gray like whose is the true earl gray yeah. jackson's of piccadilly claim that charles gray gave the original recipe to robert jackson um, and his partner, George Charlton, in 1830. But advertisements for Earl Grey from this company do not appear until the 1880s. So it's unlikely. Richard, who was the sixth Earl Grey, he, as the Earl of Grey, endorsed Twinnings tea, which I drank. Yes. Um, and his actual signature appears on the boxes of Twinnings Earl Grey tea. They also trademarked Lady Grey. Um, they, like, officially own that tea flavor. And finally, the East, the East India Company put in a claim saying that theirs is the original recipe that came from <laughs> their, like, weird relationship from the Lord Grey. Um, except they use neroli oil, which is from a bitter orange, instead of bergamot. Okay. Still, the fact remains, no one knows what the original recipe is and no one knows how or the Earl of Grey or Earl Grey <laughs> created Earl Grey tea, but nevertheless, it is Earl Grey tea month, so everybody go drink Whoa. a nice cup of tea. That is some like random but fun trivia. Yeah, I was like, this is truly so random, yeah. but I can do whatever I want, so. <laughs> Are you ready to get into romance novels? I am. I feel like I should have some like wine and like. I, should we light a candle? Music playing. I'll light a candle. And... All right, now we're gonna light a candle. Here we go. Okay. Candle has been lit. We are ready. So It's romantic. It is. The modern romance novel originated in the romantic fiction of the 18th and 19th century. Writers like Samuel Richardson and Radcliffe and Jane Austen introduced a new form of fiction that focused on the lives and struggles of women. Shocking. Historically, I, I know, me too. Historically, romance novels separate themselves from other genres as novels written by women, for women, and about women. Although Samuel Richardson was a male who kind of started the genre, um, there are very few significant male writers. It really is a genre populated by significant females. Because, I mean, you're probably going to say this yourself. <laughs> you can say it. Women know what women like, <laughs> and they're for women, right? Like, right. Even though the first, like, great romantic novel that, like, women loved was written by a man, and they mm-hmm. were like, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> Congrats. Well, they were probably like, great idea, we can do better. <laughs> yeah. But, like, because he was the first, it was like, right. all right. Early romance novels featured straight white female protagonists uh-huh. defying or challenging social conventions in pursuit of their own happiness. Shocking. Typically, at the end of a romance novel, the female protagonist finds their true love and ends the novel secure and happy. Mm. An emotionally satisfying ending, as well as a romantic relationship, are the foundations of all romantic novels. It's not necessarily ha- doesn't necessarily have to be a happy ending, but it is required that it be emotionally satisfying. Mm-hmm. So there now we are at the point that we know romance novels don't have to end up with the couple together if we feel like it is the correct choice for the female protagonist to not end up with that male. That's mm-hmm. like important, an okay. important concept. 
um, Jane Eyre shouldn't have ended up with what's his face. <laughs> oh, oh, that guy was the worst. <laughs> anyway, his wife in the attic. Spoilers. <laughs> Romance novels reflect the desires of their audience who were typically educated women. Um, so many of the romance novels we think of, of Jane Austen, like they weren't, they weren't lower class, but they weren't the most upper class, but mm-hmm. they were of a class that they could still be educated. In Jane Austen and Bronte sisters novels, okay. the <laughs> female protagonists were, are rewarded with successful marriages because the characters express their individuality and personal desires. Mm-hmm. And this is significant at a time when female readers were trapped in social norms in con- and conventions where they felt like they couldn't do that. So part of the reason romance novels became so popular is that here's this book where a woman is loved because she's an individual and not just because she's a woman with mm-hmm. a duty. Yeah. Um, which I love. And I think it's such a concise way of saying why Jane Austen is, like, so revered, you know? Yeah. Pride and Prejudice has been called the greatest romance novel ever written. Um, many consider it that. Jane Eyre, with its many issues, um, did also introduce the idea of an orphaned heroine and that, like, women from not clear-cut social standings are also, like, be, can be a part of the romance genre. Mm-hmm. Romance novels offered a form of escape and inspiration for young women, again, in a time when they were very trapped in societal norms. In the 20th century, Georgette Heyer's novel The Black Moth and Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind revitalized public interest in romance novels, particularly historical romances. These were also increasingly popular following the First World War. Mm-hmm. Daphne du Maurier's gothic romance novel, Rebecca, which is one of my mom's favorites, blended horror and romance to create a new, thrilling, dramatic, and dynamic novel. These novels featured female protagonists battling through terrifying events in order to be with their true love. So the idea of, like, fighting for true love and, like, having to go through, having to struggle through things in order Mm. to, like, reach that end. And also the idea that, like, women can go through those things. Um, like, it wasn't just, like, a man being, like, I'm going through this terrible thing. Whereas many, many romance novels you read, it's often, like, the men are in the military and women are waiting for them to return. Mm-hmm. As opposed to this was a woman going through her own struggles. And yeah. Very similar. Gone with the wind. Like, they lose all their money. Like, all these things. Um, showcasing challenges that women go through. Yeah. Instead of just kind of waiting. In the 1950s and 60s, writers shifted their attention to exotic locations and heroines who had jobs other than being a housewife or a mother. Now, in many of these novels, the protagonist was a stewardess or nurse, so it was still jobs centered around, like, caring for others, most often men and military men. Um, But it did show women in the workforce to reflect the fact that women were now in the workforce. Yeah. In 1970, Gordon Merrick published the first best-selling gay romance called The Lord Won't Mind, which I love. I love that name. That's great. Amazing. And then Vincent Verga in 1983 published Gay Wick, which was the first gay gothic romance. In 1972, Kathleen E. Woodowis published The Fame and the the Flame and the Flower, which introduced a new sub subgenre called the Bodice Ripper, which is oh. a very problematic and also but like culturally significant genre. Yeah. Up until this point, mass market romance novels featured very little sexual explicit sexually explicit content uh-huh. like there's only like a chaste kiss and that's it yeah um but bodice rippers are historical fiction novels that featured beautiful fierce independent virgin women who catch the attention of an quote-unquote alpha male figure mm. that would seduce and dominate her 
Jeez. Bodice rippers were notorious for featuring rape and abuse as part of the love story, perpetuating the, so they sort of perpetuated inadvertently <clears throat> the idea that, the, <laughs> the idea that women wanted to be dominated. Um, this actually started in 1921 with the film The Sheik, which introduced the idea of rape fantasy. Mm. This really happened because publishers believed that readers would only accept premarital sex in the context of rape. Oh, yeah. That otherwise people wouldn't watch it and wouldn't see it, and they would demonize the main yeah. character. Which is a very, like interesting and sort of backwards way of thinking about it that they were like well we have to make them like the main character so we have to make it like we want them to have sex but we but they we, can't want it right they can't want it exactly um in the, in the chic and the novels that fought, followed of the bodice rippers era the heroine was never shown experiencing trauma or stress as a result okay so it's like it's like this weird thing that's like it I get what you're saying. Like, there was no consent, and therefore it was rape, but it was, like, their odd solution to a question mark of a problem that then later... Like, once it was happening, she was having fun. She just didn't want it to start. Right. Right. And, like, there was no... There was never any sign later on that she regretted it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Which is important because this is something that romance novels are going to tackle, like, in the years that follow. Mm -hmm. Over time, these narratives were replaced... And bodice rippers became a sort of relic of their time. Mm-hmm. Writer Bree Bridges says, quote, people like to point to the ravishing, dubious consent pr- present in the 70s romances as a reason that the genre is anti-feminist. But my response is that if I stopped engaging with any type of media that was sexist in the 70s, I would <laughs> run out of books and movies really fast. Yeah. It always strikes me as frustrating that other genres get to be evaluated individually, but the one dominated by women has to show perfect feminist content in every book or the entire genre is damned. I think it's a very eloquent way of putting it. In the 1980s and 1990s, writers Jackie Collins, Danielle Steele, and Nora Roberts pushed the envelope of what romance novels could include. I'm sure you've heard of at least Danielle Steele and yeah. Nora Roberts. You've definitely seen their covers yeah. in bookstores. Harper Collins established a new division called Harlequin, and it was the first publishing house to produce romance novels directly targeting female readers instead of like being like, this is for the general population, but we know mm. women read it. It was literally like, women! Yeah. <laughs> um, which is incredible. They became famous for their eye-catching covers featuring lovers caught in illicit or dreamy moments. <laughs> um, it is around this time that model Fabio Lanzoni became a cover <laughs> model for dozens of romance novels. And now I promise you, you're picturing him right now. He's the one with the long flowing yes. hair. He was an American, by the way. He was not Italian. What? Yeah, they just gave him like this sexy Italian name. Isn't that crazy? I met someone once named Fabio, and I was like... <laughs> See, I did in Italy, too, and I was like, hi. <laughs> Mary Bonnycastle, wife of Harlequin founder Richard Bonnycastle, and her daughter Judy exercised editorial control over which Mills and Boons, which was another publishing house, they Harlequin would reprint them, so it was their job to read them and kind of censor them. They had a decency code and rejected more sexually explicit material that... Um, Mills and Boons would then submit for reprinting. Mm-hmm. But realizing that the romance genre was popular, Richard Bonnycastle finally decided to read a romance novel. So he <gasps> passed it off to his wife and daughter being like, you do it, here's the code. And then finally he was like, all right, let's just read it. Um, he chose one of the more explicit novels <gasps> and really enjoyed it. Um, and so on his orders, the company conducted a market test with the novel um, and it discovered that it outsold the the tamer version. Oh, I know. Um, 
And so Harlequin sold almost $70 million of its paperback romances in 1979 through 100,000 supermarkets and other stores, giving the company almost 10% of the market for paperback books as a whole. Wow. Yeah. Beverly Jenkins began writing historical fiction romance for black women in the mid-90s. Starting in the 2000s, there's also been a steady shift to diversify the romance novel. Um, So there are more appearing with people of color, Mm -hmm. people with disabilities, pretty much every combination you can think of. Yeah. Um, And romance novels has always been one of the first groups to do so in terms of, like, diversifying and approaching new material. Mm -hmm. There are two subsets of romance novels. Category romances are short and usually no more than 200 pages. The books are published in clearly delineated lines. Um, so it's like you won't, the, the physical book is not the whole story. It's mm-hmm. meant to be like bought and repeated and they're supposed to be like paperback and cheap and small. Yeah. With a certain number of books published in each line every month. So they're published often. Normally writers who write these write only these. And then single titles novels are romance novels not published as a part of a publisher's category. Um, they are longer than category romances. They're typically between 300 and 400 pages. They are their own individual story, although they could still be part of a series. Publishers may release the novels over a shorter period of time for sales and publicity reasons, but on average, single title writers write 1.5 novels per year and have one each year published. So it's more, it's more like Jodi Picoult releases a book every year, you know? <laughs> she does. She does. She calls her books her babies because she takes nine months to write them, send it to the editor, and then takes a three-month break. So it's like every year, like, clockwork. Mm. <laughs> it's crazy. Category romances make up 40% of the romance novel market, um, but then within single titles, there are other sub-genres. Contemporary romances are set after World War II, and they're often what people refer to when they consider a romance novel. Most contemporary romance novels contain elements that date the books very specifically. Mm -hmm. So if you read a contemporary romance novel from the 80s, you'd be able to tell by the context that it is the 80s. It's very Mm -hmm. important to the structure of the novel. Um, The majority of them, unfortunately, eventually become irrelevant to more modern readers and go out of print. One of the only writers to withstand... This is Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. Because she was, like, by definition, her books are a contemporary romance, even though now they are considered historical. But she is lucky in that her books have not been considered, like, no longer relevant because they don't speak to issues that matter to us anymore. <laughs> this is a testament to her writing. Historical romance, also known as the historical novel, is a broad category of fiction in which the plot takes place in a setting located in the past, and that's very foundational. There's a lot of World War II romance novels out there. Um, Jane Austen's novels, like I said, are now have been reclassified as historical romances, even though by definition they are contemporary because in, when they were published, they were speaking to the contemporary yeah. issue. But now we see them as historical because they no longer speak to a current issue it's like a weird relationship that they have it's very odd um which is kind of like when i was um i I studied shakespeare like really heavily in 
mm-hmm. high school and early college. We've talked about that before, I think. Yeah. But uh, we, I've had several discussions about how Shakespeare wasn't meaning for his work to be, like, set in a time period 400 years in the past. Right. So, like, when you make the choice to put a piece in modern day, like, it's not, like, a radical choice. Like, right, 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 right. <laughs> it's supposed to speak or, to modern Or problems. if you choose to put modern music along with it. Like, that's not insane because Shakespeare had modern music playing with his stuff. Like, right, he was right, like, right, right. he didn't intend for things to be old-timey, like... Right, and that's the same thing with Jane Austen. Yeah, exactly. Whereas historical novels now are written to recall the past. Yeah. They are with that in mind. Romantic suspense involves an intrigue or mystery for the protagonist to solve. Um, The heroine, typically the heroine is the victim of a crime or attempted crime and must work with a hero um, who is in, like, a field of protection, like a cop or a CIA agent. Um, Mary Stewart who wrote all those books about King Arthur, has written 10 of these types of novels. I love her. Yeah. Paranormal romance blends the real with the fantastic or the science fictional. The fantastic elements may be woven into an alternate version of our own world, which might involve vampires, werewolves, and or demons. (laughs) This is... Twilight doesn't really count because it's considered a young adult novel. But probably by the end, we might consider it a... A, fan, a paranormal romance and certainly many novels that followed following the the big twilight boom mm-hmm. were paranormal romances similar to paranormal romance there's also science fiction romance fantasy romance and time travel romance of which outlander is both fantasy ah! and time travel <laughs> which is fun Bridget Jones is... Di- I guess it's not fantasy because there's not like dragons in it but like it is there's time it, travel but there is time travel and there's like magic and Oh, there is magic? Well, mm, or is it just Claire being a doctor? <laughs> no, well, uh, I mean, the manner in which she times travels is very magical. Okay. Um, then, sure, it could be, it could be considered uh, fantasy Like, romance. it's not like she gets in a machine. Yeah. Bridget Jones's Diary, which was published in 1996, started mm. its own branch of romance novel known as Chicklet. Some of the dominant themes of Chicklet are a single woman's journey through career, high-powered work environment, personal life, relationships, motherhood, and parenting. So some of the more, like, mundane ideas of, like, love and romance as opposed to, like, this, like, I'm going to sweep you off my feet type of thing. I definitely get the, like, desire to, like, create a genre just for women. But I, like, I'm just, like, trying to fathom a world in which, like, a novel was written about, like, a man just, like, living a typical life and, like, what happened to him and people being, like, this is, like, men's literature. Like, no, it just becomes there's something anyone could read. Right. Um, no, Chicklet was, like, like, that was created as a term of endearment. Not yeah, for, I know like, what you're saying. It's just... It's for women. <laughs> no, it was meant to, like, yes. illuminate. Um... Romance novels have a lasting impression and play a key role in women's participation in the world of literature. Romance novels engage us in conversations about consent, gender, and relationships. Romance is also a genre that allows women to explicitly center and explore their own pleasure. Feminist writer and academic Jenny Cruzy says, quote, many modern romance writers zero in on the sexual lies women have been told, reversing patriarchal constraints and confirming what women already knew about their sexual identities, but that many distrusted because it conflicted with the conventional wisdom that detailed what being a good woman was all about. Right on. Right on. New York Times writer Jennifer Weiner said that romance novels taught readers that sexual pleasure was something women could not just hope for, but insist upon. 
romance novels are often looked down upon because of their predictability, which is something that I've absolutely said about uh, rom-coms before, like the movies, Mm -hmm. which is that you expect the main character to end up in a relationship. Author Tess Sharp, like, kind of challenged me a little bit when I was doing this. She said what they don't get enough credit for is that as a writer, this could be challenging because when you're trying to please viewers, you can't pull the same trick twice. So you're coming up with new ways to surprise people in reading about romance, which Mm -hmm. is, like, a cool way of thinking about it. Um, And also that she wants to differentiate her characters and not turn them into tropes. Like, oh, her characters are all like this and they all fall in love with men like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is, like, an interesting writing experience experiment predictability also makes romance feel safe and comfortable and those are not bad feelings to have yeah that's really all i have about no, romance that's great. novels um i thought i found some cool stuff in there yeah i enjoyed it you know i've i feel I like, like jane austen <laughs> yeah i feel like um watching jane the virgin made me like have a more of a <laughs> respect for it because that char- like before i thought it was like oh you know that trash you see at the store but Right. Like, seeing a character that I consider very, like, intellectual, like, yeah. kind of love for that genre. Yeah. And it's um, unfortunate that many people still, when they think of romance novels, think about bodice rippers, and they're like, oh, they're yeah. grungy and rapey. But it's like, that's not what they are yeah. anymore. Yeah. They are now, like, although they were originally focused on women with jobs like stewardesses, nurses, now pro- female protagonists in this could be and could do anything. Um, So it's meant for women to, like, sort of insert and explore their own fantasies, but in, mm-hmm. like, a safe way. Yeah. Um. So that's where cool. That's where we're at with that. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us on Anchor directly through the link in the bio and or consider leaving us a five-star review on Anchor. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. Jane, you know what I've been wondering? What? So I thought that it would be a good time to talk about this because you're getting ready to go to grad school and something just happened in the state of California, um, at University of California, Berkeley. I forget which specific school uh-huh, it is. Uh-huh. Um, that they are no longer requiring standardized tests. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want you, I do know a little bit about this, but I want you to tell me just a little bit about the standardized test. Maybe not so much as history, but, like, why people yeah. are against it, what significance it has, and, like, why we need or don't father. need it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Call your dad. <laughs> he has many opinions <laughs> on standardized testing. Call him in. He'll dial into the show. <laughs> anyway, that's what I've been wondering. Awesome. Sarah, yeah. you know what I've been wondering? What? <laughs> um, I've been wondering about... Like, Australia as a penal colony and <laughs> oh. what people had to do to get sent there from Ooh. England. Ooh, that's a good one. Have you ever read the play Our Country's Good? <laughs> no. It's, like, a, it's about that, but not really. It just no. happens to be uh-huh. a group of criminals and uh-huh. British officers that are there for that reason. Oh. Um, but it doesn't offer any historical context. But it's a fantastic play. Oh. I'm going to read it. <laughs> I'm just going to perform the play for you. Great. Can't wait. <laughs> any activity is a good activity. That's great. I love that. I love history. Cool. Cool. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering.